Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast on American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow of the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Severium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Charles. Best at life? the time that we're recording this, the Federalist Society Conference in D.C. just concluded. Event of the year. Indeed. People going uh, crazy. For, for, some, of us, for, for some of us, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts, pretty wild, you know, <laughs> a lot of alcohol. But I was... I was there both to just kind of see friends and schmooze in the hallways, but also because I was actually invited to speak on a small lunchtime panel with Eugene Volok and Richard Epstein. I have no idea why NYU Law School thought that I was worth putting up a panel with those two people giants, but it was fun. One thing that struck me in just various conversations in the hallways was the real sense of pessimism in certain corners of the right about deplatforming, about law schools, about generalized sense that woke liberal hegemony has, you know, it now reigns supreme in all the institutions and that they have few pathways to, to fight back. Of course, one thing that kept getting brought up was whether electoral avenues were still open. Whether okay. it was possible okay. to fight back against, you see where this is going. I can already no, tell. I don't know where oh, it's you going. Where the, like, oh, I have no idea how we got going. this to the topic. Oh, oh, oh. Well, well, well. Charles, prepare to prepare to watch a master joke. Yeah. So, so everyone was, you know, debating. Well, is it, should it be DeSantis? Should it be Trump? The midterms were a, a topic of conversation. And one thing that a few of the more dissident people said in hushed conversations was, well, yeah, you know, maybe DeSantis has it in him, but got to talk about immigration. Um, and there we go. Now and, I see, and now how, I see Yeah, there we go. And how immigrant and how, you know, waves of uh, immigration this is like the are creating transitions. You got to go all the way around the board to get there. Yes. Yes. Structural obstacles to fighting, uh, to fighting the left's dominance. Now, so Charles, why don't you explain what we're going to be talking about? We are we are conveniently talking about migration today, slightly in a slightly different key than than our episode with Tehara, which I think went directly. Well, he was we talked we talked a little bit about the politics of immigration with him, and we're talking about sort of not really the politics of immigration so much as the structural features of immigration, the economic impacts of immigration, but it's necessarily also a political question. You know, specifically, we're interested in the effects of immigrants and the cultures that they bring with them on the countries that they come to. When we talk about immigration policy, we often think of immigrants as interchangeable, either all as humanitarian cases or all as sort of a fungible labor pool with maybe some variation. I think a lot about the title of Harvey Connors-Rich Borges' book, We Wanted Workers, um, the concluding quote to which is, we wanted workers, but we got people instead. And this is sort of the reality of immigration that Borges argues is that there's, you know, uh, so much of the immigration question actually comes down to, well, which immigrants? And it often gets elided in the broader discussion. And I think, you know, in general, in, in, in the American immigration system in particular, we're particularly bad at making decisions between immigrants on more than superficial characteristics. The 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 categories, the information we consider and the categories into which we slot green card recipients don't do a good job. So how do we think about not just the skills or the humanitarian cause that immigrants bring with them, but the culture that they bring and the impact that they can be expected to have on a country? This is obviously a lot apropos of our guest who's written a book on the topic. We'll get to him in a second. And I think he'll sort of elucidate some of these ideas more substantially for all you listeners. But Aaron, first, tell us what you're thinking about this week. 
Yeah. So, so uh, this, this debate will be familiar to many, though not all of our listeners. Basically, on the right, there is there's a small but fairly influential group of people you might call them paleo conservatives who in recent years have argued uh not just against large-scale immigration from latin america but also against immigration from asia in large part on the grounds that asians like most recent immigrants tend to vote for democrats and the argument I'm simplifying a bit, and we can get into a more steel man version of this later. But the basic argument is Democrats support large-scale immigration from all these countries because it helps Democrats. It does help Democrats. People who want conservative or Republican policies should oppose immigration because immigration just means that there is a large electoral voting block for other policies. And my lovely co-host Charles has in fact participated in this debate arguing that no, 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 when you look at the data, actually Asians are not as much of a kind of democratic voting bloc as some of our friends like Helen Andrews or Amy Wax say. It's actually possible for the GOP to win them, blah, blah, blah. But to me, our guesswork, we'll get to this in a minute, suggests that, well, Charles may not be wrong in the narrow sense. It does seem like the GOP can win Asians. There is nonetheless a, a, a real big kernel of truth to what some of these pretty hard right figures are saying in that political preferences tend to be sticky. Assimilation is often incomplete. And in fact, yes, immigrants do tend to change the politics of the countries they go to. So what I'm really interested in is both the degree to which immigrants' political preferences are or are not malleable, and then also how should that philosophically factor into our calculus about immigration, right? It's one thing to say, well, immigrants improve X, Y, or Z economic measure or don't. But there's a whole other debate here, which is, you know, if immigrants vote for disproportionately for a particular political party or a particular set of policies, how will that affect the culture and the politics of our country? I think it's an important question and one that for various political reasons is often not discussed enough. So I'm looking forward to having a candid and hopefully moderately spicy conversation about all of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just add to that briefly, because I think I think you hit on a lot of my interests. Part of why I wanted to have our guest on is because I think that he he touches on the topics that are of interest to me now, the the incompleteness and challenges of assimilation, the costs and management of diversity in a society, you know, Diversity is not necessarily unalloyed good and how we respond to that. Thinking about the relationship between culture and productivity and economic development. You know, I think I he's 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 a pretty heterodox thinker, so I'm glad to, I'm glad to have him on the show. You know, I and 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 I think part of my goal is, you know, I as you mentioned, I'm a participant in this debate about Asian immigration voting, Asian immigration, cultural implications of it. And and I think that, you know, both sides of that debate could could benefit from sort of some of the the skew the distinction perspective that he that he brings that's you know part of my goal is to, is to sort of say how can how can we square this into contemporary disputes about the way that how can we fit this into contemporary disputes of the way that immigration shapes culture and shapes voting behavior shapes our economy that's you know a lot like lot to cover um a good guy to cover it with is our guest Garrett Jones is an associate professor of economics and BB&T professor for the study of capitalism at the Mercatus Center George Mason University 
He's the author of several books, most recently The Culture Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Move to a Lot Like the Ones They Left. And that's what we're discussing today. Garrett, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. So we'd like to start with sort of a provocative question. Currently in the United States, we issue about a million green cards every year. That's been about the pace for, you know, between 2000 and 2019, that was about the pace. Are we allocating them correctly? Should we be issuing about that many? Should we be issuing fewer? How, 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 how should we be handing out access to the United States? Oh, just trying to find smart people, smart, talented people who proportionately, but not completely, come from countries that have pretty good institutions because people bring their cultural norms with them to a moderate degree. So, you know, if you're trying to bring in people with advanced degrees from top schools and you're bringing in people who are disproportionately, from, but not completely, from countries that have had good institutions for a couple of generations, market-oriented institutions, liberal free speech institutions, that's going to, on average, tend to help your country in that direction. And those are good things to have, free speech, liberal values, cosmopolitanism. Fair enough. Let's let's I guess sort of dive into the the argument that the arguments you make that under underline underscore that sort of priorities in your in your new book. You talk about you know the 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 sort of argument of the book is is that uh, you tell me things is wrong that that the culture of migrants matters a great deal and profoundly shapes the countries that they come to. And you use a bunch of different components of a very broad literature to make this argument. So I want to talk through some of the sort of specific pieces of your bigger argument first. Let's start by talking about what you call the the deep roots literature. What are what are the key ideas that you get out of there? What what does that mean? Yes, well about about a dozen years ago, a couple of professors at Brown University did a really great job collecting data on basically in the old world where people how long different cultures had experience with settled agriculture. Mm-hmm and how long people had been living under organized states. They also created these measures for the, for the new world as well. Of course, since 1500, people started moving a lot of places around the world, right? A lot of that was violent, um, horrifying. And what they're able to show is that, what they were able to show in this early paper, this is Putterman and Weil, two Brown University professors, what they were able to show is that you could do a pretty good job predicting prosperity today in a country by knowing the, histo- the ancestral backgrounds of people in different countries. So basically, if you want to know how well North America is doing economically today, you wouldn't want to know how well it was doing in 1400. You would want to know how well the ancestors of the people who live there today were doing in 1400. That's basically the kind of measure you'd want to know. So this kicked up because there was, their first results were so robust, that got a lot of other people collecting different measures in what's now known as the deep roots literature. It's basically an idea that the more things change, the more they stay the same once you adjust for migration. And it keeps getting repeated pretty robustly. It's not complete. It's not the full story of everything, but it's a part that's left out of basically all the textbooks and it really belongs there. This, you know, I I think there's a broader observation across a variety of domains. The institutional persistence is a really powerful determinant. But, you know, the, the, as, 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 as you put it, or to, to paraphrase what you said, the way things used to be is a fairly strong predictor of the way that things are. So, so part of the deep roots literature, though, that you that you talk about in in your book is is the sort of migration adjusted deep roots. Part of your argument is that migration adjusted measures end up outperforming non migration adjusted measures. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, yeah. So it means like if I'm trying, like, and I suggested before, if you're trying to predict how rich North America is, and your two measures are the migration adjusted experience of North America with, say, agriculture versus the migration adjusted measure, 
you'd rather know where the people came from rather than know the history of the place. The way Putterman and Wilde put it is, it's better to know the history of peoples rather than the history of places. Well, but so, so and part this of isn't just true for North America, right? And North America gets a lot of attention, but it's also true across Southeast Asia. It's cr true in Latin America as well, where the Southern Cone, a place that's received a lot of migration from Western Europe, these are Chile, Argentina, Uruguay. Those countries have, on average, better institutional quality as the way we normally measure it. Well, so part of, part of the implication there is that basically, if you to talk about people and places, when you're trying to figure out how some, somewhere is today, you learn more by thinking about where the ancestors, the people who are there today, you, you learn more by thinking at the character of their ancestors than you do by thinking about the character of the people who were there in 1500. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so part of part of what that implies is that, you know, the 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 popular notion of assimilation, that when when migrants come to a place, they start to resemble the place. Eventually they become the same or indistinguishable from they, they become part of the melting pot, that that popular notion of assimilation is at least incomplete. And you write about assimilation. Can you can you talk a little bit about how that connects? Yeah, it turns out this is has been even easier to measure in a robust way. So what a group of economists started doing is they started, they, they look at all these value surveys that are run around the world, where you ask people in different countries around the world, how much do you trust strangers? How much do you think, do you think government should take care of people or should people mostly take care of themselves? And it turns out that Italian Americans hold views that are a lot like Italians in Italy on these questions. German Americans hold values, hold opinions a lot like Germans in Germany. And I don't just mean first or second generation migrants. I mean, like fourth generation Italian Americans hold views that are a lot like Italians in Italy. So these views are persistent across generations. And we know that now that it's a lot of researchers have checked this with a lot of different data sets. So it's not just a fluke where one person reported this once on a blog. It's pretty clear that for when it comes to attitudes towards savings, attitudes toward the proper role of government, attitudes toward whether you can trust strangers, these views at least last to the right. second generation probably beyond. And and one implication here, something that's worth drawing out. So I think one reason that people might not trust strangers in a given country could be that strangers there are in fact less trustworthy, right? If yes. you live in a failed state, right? It's, it's rational to not trust strangers in a country where there's lots of ethnic conflict, where people exactly. are, I don't know, getting shot. Right. So, you know, those attitudes are not irrational, but it seems like that the implication of this literature is that Attitudes that are rational in one country can be transplanted with very little modification to another country in which they may be less rational, right? So yeah. presumably they're going to continue to distrust, you know, strangers, even if they come to a country where there's more maybe objective reason to trust strangers. Is that, is that right? Well, I would say it can be largely transplanted, but not completely. So right. one measure, okay. when I try to glibly summer up a whole literature, it's hard. But with the trust measure, I'd say 40%. And that, that right. captures, that's sort of the median estimate of a lot of literatures there. So 40, if you say 40% persistence lasting for a very long time, that's a pretty big deal. Right. I discussed some of the details in the book, but I think that's a good place for us to start. Right. So you think about a... If I called the book the 40% culture transplant, that might have worked. <laughs> and, of, and of course, I mean, the, the other, the flip side of that is to those immigrants' ancestors, you know, that still leaves 50% that's changing, right? 
Yes. So I and mean, they would they would look at it and exactly be like, "What that change means?" Right. Right. So, for instance, when it comes to ethnic cuisine, which is not controversial at all to talk about, it's pretty clear that migrants change us too, right? I mean, I love yeah. pizza, right? So yeah. I'm not Italian at all. So we meet meeting in the middle. What some people call assimilation to the native culture, the domestic culture, is probably just meeting in the middle to a large degree. Right. So right. I call that the spaghetti theory of cultural change. Right. So sometimes when you see people assimilate, it, so-called assimilation is is often going to be a meeting in the middle. And I think there needs to be more work on that. And, and do you have so, any theories as to why this is the case? Like why why these attitudes are so persistent? Well, I mean, in the case of spaghetti, it's obvious. Spaghetti is delicious. Right. So sometimes people bring something great. And you, I mean, that's yeah. really, that's sure, got to sure, be sure. true with a lot of things, right? Sure, sure. And I would say with the economics question, like with trust and trustworthiness, it's easy to tell economic stories where it's really reasonable to be distrustful of strangers, right? So it's right. not, the weird thing is trusting strangers, right? So right. in a way, moving toward a culture of distrust is in a way is becoming more like homo economicus, the stereotype of totally selfish humans. Trust is the puzzle to be explained, not trust, not in, um, yeah. distrust. Interesting. Yeah. So, so if you sort of take those as the two basic arguments, it seems to me like the conclusion is people's culture persists dramatically, even when they when they move to a different country, and also variation in culture and certain specific experiences of culture matter a great deal for a given country's success. Is that is sort of an accurate summary of your position? Yeah, and I think that when people come to a new place, they seem to move the government in that direction in the direction of the culture of their, the country they came from. So this is why, so when, so values are being imported into the voting booth through the migration process. And I don't particularly care about whether that shows up as D's versus R's or whatever. Like the Republican party has changed a lot of my lifetime. And obviously it was a totally different being in the 1860s, mm -hmm. better thing then maybe. And it's, so the, the party labels are, should be less important to us than thinking about the values that your voting electorate has. Right, right. And, you know, I think part of the implication there is that composition matters much more than persuasion for electoral outcomes. That, that you know, it's, it's, it's fairly hard to mutate the views of new additions to the, to the voting pool. And so, and so you know, the, the idea is that the very least I'd with, say both are important. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and, yeah. and I mean, I isn't another another implication, right? Is that the 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 question that folks like Charles have asked in in research about, well, you know, can the GOP win immigrants or what? Like that's almost that's kind of missing the point, perhaps, right? Because sure, they can probably win them, median voter theorem, but the question is what the kind of median values of the electorate are, and thus how that changes both political parties in the long run. And so, yeah, you know, it would be one thing, right? Like, yeah. like if you say, oh, well, like there's always going to be competition between two parties, but the Overton window of what the two parties debate shifts really far in one direction. I mean, that's not really much comfort to the stolid kind of cultural or economic conservative who wants to see the country be more right wing, which I think is an important nuance in this debate that people sometimes overlook. Yeah, we've had the same two parties since about 1860 in this country, right? And they've been running the show and they've switched sides on plenty of issues. So, yes.
So, so you so, and you said you said at the sort of the start of this conversation that basically immigration selection should be done on the basis of smart people who align with our values. I think is maybe a fair way to put it. Smart people who who or who who have values that are conducive to societal flourishing. Believe well, in I'll say you're specifically asking about H one Bs there, right? So H one Bs are merit based visas. So I was diving into that question, right? I think yeah. that's. I mean, that kind of approach is a a good approach for for most immigration for most countries in the world. Right. So, so but let, yeah. let, let's talk about some of the differing perspectives, though. One argument is America is a very rich country. We have a lot of very poor countries to our immediate south, particularly if you go past Mexico. The quality of life of those individuals would dramatically increase if they were able to come to the United States. Well, you know, if, if, if you moved half the population of Honduras here, those people would live probably much better lives on average than they do currently. Is there a strong argument against doing that? Well, I, I look up the population of Honduras. 10 million people, right? So 10 million people in Honduras, let's say half of them moved here. I mean, that's much less than 2% of the American population, right? So like, what's, that's not going to change anything. Okay. But notice, <laughs> notice, I'm a person who, I use arithmetic and arithmetic is obviously a superpower. <laughs> okay. So what happens let's, though, let's, 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 let's expand. 5 million people are going to, they're not going to change the politics. So like not in any detectable way. There's no statistical test that I or others have run that would like detect the effect of right. that on national politics a hundred years from now, right? Right. So, okay. But, if, but if they move, if they move, and then other people are like, "Hey, that's great," then you might be talking about more than just five million people yeah. from Honduras, right? Isn't I can, the, I can, the, I can get to fifty million really fast if I start adding in other Central American countries. The question remains. Yeah, yeah, you could. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It it does seem plausible that that if you know a hundred million people move to the U.S. from a from a region of the world that's much much poorer. There wouldn't be institutional change overnight, but there would probably be institutional change, cultural change in an obvious social way over the next 20, 30, maybe yeah. 50 to 60 years, right? And the doom and gloomers who would predict that like the world will collapse in a week or a month or two years, those people would be wrong. And a lot of liber modern libertarianism lives in the world of 10 years or less, I'd say. And so libertarianism would be vindicated in such a setting. Right. I'd say like, yeah, this is a huge success, 10 years of prosperity, totally worth it. What I'm really concerned about, though, is the fact that the U.S. and a handful of other nations do most of the world's R&D, the vast majority of the world's R&D, patenting, scientific innovation, and that's really sensitive to government quality. So the whole world has a huge amount to lose if the U.S. and a half dozen other countries have their institutions weakened substantially through, through migration or other dumb policies. Like the wrong kinds of policies that weaken institutions are a cost to the whole world, not just to that country itself. Yeah. So I can't do the math on like benefits of this group versus cost sure. to that group when we're talking about 10, 20 million people. But I can do something where it's the U.S. versus 8 billion people, right? And sure. keeping American institutional quality high so that R&D can be high, patenting can be high, that's going to help the whole world. I mean, that's... That's we're going to get our vaccines from these countries, from this half dozen or so super innovators for the future. So, so the 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 effective altruist case for immigration restriction, at least in certain countries, right? right? Um, <laughs> so, so, so basically, the countries that are the innovation powerhouses, there it's rational to have a sort of very conservative approach toward preserving institutional quality. I mean, conservative in the sense of conserving the institutional quality and improving it as much as possible. Look at the country that you're getting your ideas from. Realize the whole world has a lot to gain from that. 
Effective altruists and long-termists should be obsessed with preserving and improving institutional quality in those countries. So then what should we do about immigration of people from poor countries who'd like to go to rich countries? Um, well, the, the approach that I favor, I, I start with a extreme version of it just to get the point across. I call it open borders for Iceland. <laughs> so, you know, Iceland is a country with great institutions. I've been there. It's a great country. It's got, you know, maybe a third of a million people and it can hold a lot more people. And if the open borders activists are right and migration has very little effect on institutional quality, we could get like, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people there and definitely tens of millions of people there. And you wouldn't even get nearly as dense as Singapore. So, but the, the, the countries that produce most of the world's new ideas, what I call the I-7, the innovative seven countries, let's, let's slow our roll on trying to take on taking big risks with the institutional quality of those countries. But it seems like just to push back and then I'm going to slide for direction, it, 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 it seems like there are, for lack of a term, selfish reasons to care about institutional quality as well, right? Like it's actually pretty good to live in Iceland. It would become much less pleasant to live in Iceland there, what you said, there's 300,000 people in Iceland. If we import, if, if 6 million people who all believed that bribery was good and the rule of law was bad moved to Iceland, it would become quite unpleasant to live in Iceland. So it seems to me like even, even if that would be maybe net good for the people who are moving there, at least relative to the, the Kent factor where they don't live there, the people in Iceland have every right to say, no, actually, I don't want to live under that kind of Where do of they state. have, I don't believe in rights. You do, I guess. I don't believe in rights. Nonsense. Uh, they have the guns. They have the guns. They're going to do something violent. If you're telling me that like it won't happen because people are evil and they'll do evil things, there I'm with you, right? No, 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 no. I believe it's, in human evil. I would call that. I would call that pretty reasonable human selfishness. I well, have well, a nice yeah, thing going for me. I don't want to sacrifice that I'm going for others, me. So. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, we can, we can, we can strip rights out of it and still get across yeah. the basic point. But the, the, the question is, the question is, too. Same, same you know, thing. whether it's morally legitimate Obligatory. in some way to preserve your own self-interest, right? Even at the cost to other people. Um, right. Or the right? obvious, is it, morally, the... is it morally obligatory to allow yes. 6 million people to come to my country, which by the way, would entitle, it would entail its own set of rights. Is it is it morally obligatory to allow 6 million people to come to my country of 300,000 if their lives would be better? Well, why not think in terms of the Coast Theorem? Is there a bargain that can be struck between the people, between 20 million people in poor countries and the 300,000 people in Iceland. How much would you have to bribe them? How much would you have to get a group of effective altruists to bribe the people of Iceland this, to be willing to do that? I mean, I I've, heard, I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard this kind of argument from sort of libertarian-leaning folks like, like Brian Kaplan before. I have to say, I mean, I feel like the issue with this is that such money. an agreement is not yeah, actually yeah. going to be reached, right? It's going to no, 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 no. There, there are concrete examples. No, this is precisely what happened when a deal was struck between the Boris Johnson government and the government of Rwanda to send migrants who wanted to live in the UK to Rwanda instead. That's the, 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 the that's exactly the kind of outcome that's being described. It happens. No, okay, sure, but but in America, right? Because sometimes what this turns into is, well, you know, they're willing to accept. X many immigrants, but only if they don't have full political rights and only if X, Y, or Z scheme of redistribution is implemented. And that that's an interesting abstract question, right? But in practice, given the way the US works and the emphasis on birthright citizenship and all of this, you know, if however many immigrants we accept, I mean, those people are going to have full political rights and a lot of the fancy redistributive 
kind of clauses in this hypothetical bargain are not actually going to be written into law. So I guess I would just say like the, 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 the more interesting question is given how the United States is actually going to respond to immigrants, what should the optimal number be? Right. And how do you assess these trade-offs between self-interest and humanitarian goals? Because we're obviously I'm not going to you. I'm handing you an effective altruist argument to use and you're just discarding it because you're like, oh, I got to worry about the Americans, right? Well, well, yeah, I mean, I think, but like we live in America. That's why I'm asking. I mean, I'm not, I'm not against the argument. I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm yeah. sympathetic to it. I just think like in practice, you know, the, the, it's probably not going to be on the menu of choices that Americans actually have to vote for anytime soon. No, you're right. I mean, the fact that the fact that a lot of political deals come unstuck in the long run is a, is a big problem, right? You you make a lot of promises and they're never going to happen. So so you should take the future. You should expect that future outcomes are going to be a lot like past outcomes. And that's if you care about U.S. institutional quality, because whether for utilitarian sure. or global utilitarian or selfish reasons, you should probably be thinking about how to find how, how to make a high skilled immigration policy work and with a focus on countries where people's ancestors have experience living under pretty good yeah. institutions, right? So, well, so, so I, that I, seems I, like go, that's, go, go that's going to help the U.S. in the long run sure. to a pretty high degree. And it's not Pollyanna-ish and it doesn't require any magical changes in human nature. So, so let me just take that as an opportunity to segue to a separate argument that you make in the book, which is about the virtues of Chinese immigration. Would you say many countries, particularly, for example, much of the developing world should be willing to accept basically as many Chinese people as they possibly can? Can you walk through the argument that you make? And then I can ask you some questions about it. Yeah. So like I, I, I started the book with this. Like I, I, pick, I pick a few countries that are right around the global median. And I say, what's the best immigration they could probably possibly, what's the immigration, best immigration policy they could possibly have? And probably it could be something like let in just about anybody from China. Somebody would say at least a high school education, no criminal records, stuff like that. And the reason why I can say that is because we have historical experience with this, right? Countries in Southeast Asia that have a whole lot of descendants of Chinese immigrants have turned out to have pretty good institutional quality, have been pretty prosperous. As I have to remind my students often, China is itself the world's poorest majority Chinese country by a long shot. So, and even countries with sizable Chinese minorities tend to create broad-based prosperity for that's widely shared. So, yeah, I think you know, if you look at countries, if I were looking at countries in Latin America that weren't that rich, I'd say like, hey, let's try to target for over a 20 to 30 year period to get your population up to 20, 30% folks who currently live in China. I think that would, you know, we, we by the end, of, by the year 2100, you'd see real results. So... And people, I think, would look around and say that they, a lot of other countries envy those results. Yeah. So, so let me ask. You know, I think my I'm 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 two minds about this. And I think you know, you look at a place like Singapore, which on the one hand is obviously a, a success story by many metrics. Great place. And you could say there's a there's well, yeah. So you could say there's a cultural inheritance that benefits them. I I buy that argument. But on the other hand, so I've 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 been to Singapore exactly once, and the two things that I remember about it is that it was the three things I remember. About it, first of all, is that the food is great. Second of all, is extremely clean. And third of all, is that there were cameras everywhere. It was really mm -hmm. alarming the degree of surveillance people accept in their lives. And the point of this story is that it does not have Western European, really English tradition of liberty in the same way that America does. Do you, as uh, someone with the least libertarian sympathies, 
worry about the importation of that uh, skepticism or the the loss of that value through transcendent immigration? Well, I mean, if I'm talking about the median country in the world, I mean, these places often have weak, they already have weak institutions as it is, right? So do I want to romanticize middling poverty? I mean, do I want to romanticize the historical culture of a place where refuse collection is irregular, electricity is intermittent? I'm actually interested in improving people's lives. And I think the people would be better off trying to take the steps that are actually practical to improve long-run prosperity. Then they can go back and romantic, you know, 100 years from now, after they're prosperous and have skyscrapers and electricity that works, then they can go back and romanticize their ancestral past. But until, the, until they've got the, the toilets running regularly, until they've got regular drinking water that's clean for everyone in the country, let's not romanticize middling poverty. Okay, but, but so the United States right now, I mean, we, we joke about it being a third world country with our voting system, say, taking forever to count votes. All right, fine. But like, for the most part, in most important respects, we still can be characterized as a first world country. So given that, right, the fact that we already have a lot of wealth and, you know, pretty good institutions in a global context, how should we, the United States, think about uh, immigrants from a country with this kind of surveillance-friendly culture that Charles talks about? I mean, so if you're talking about, oh, you're talking about the U.S. in particular, I'd be curious to see how much of that's persisted, right? So, I mean, the entire population of Singapore can move to the U.S. and you'd hardly see any budget at all, right? So... I don't know what the optimal level of surveillance is, right? So I take the metro mm -hmm. around here. There are a lot of cameras. I'm always pretty happy about that. So yeah, uh, I live in DC. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, this question, I, I don't, I mean, I love the common law. I love the Western legal tradition, but there's more than one way to create a fantastic, widely shared, prosperous future. And tinkering around the edges with uh, the Western legal tradition is probably a, a good project for the next hundred years. So one, one thing it's interesting is Singapore is very well managed. It has all this surveillance. It also has quite a bit of ethnic diversity, just very, very carefully managed ethnic diversity. And one of your arguments in your book is that diversity itself has costs, not just that immigrants from certain parts of the world might retard institutional quality or something like that, but that the mere presence of difference creates barriers to cooperation and animosities that in turn can undermine institutional quality and have political ramifications. Can you walk through that argument a little bit and what you see as the implications for U.S. immigration policy? Yeah, I mean, if, of course, you know, one way to look at this is to look at the, just the history of Western Europe and look at how these different ethnic conflicts across different countries in Western Europe, uh, partly political conflicts, partly just cultural frictions have created a lot of a lot of damage, a lot of suffering over the course of the last few centuries, right? In most of in most of international politics or domestic politics research, the term ethnic conflict is commonly used. And so we have a fair academic literature on this. It's always hard to tell what's correlation and what's causation. So, you know, I put a lot of evidence. I, I, I start off with this this one study of people who work in uh, the flower industry and uh, making, you know, picking flowers and assembling, assembling flowers in an African country. Mm -hmm. And they're the workers from different ethnic groups when they're randomly matched with each other in the workforce, like their productivity goes down a few percent. Mm -hmm. And what's important about this is not that it's some kind of universal law. It's that 
we have here a natural, a real kind of a randomized experiment. We can, you can watch the same workers when they're matched with people in the same ethnic group versus when they're matched with people in different ethnic groups. And being matched with people from a different ethnic group is, hurts productivity in a pretty concrete way. But anyway, it's just one reminder of this bigger literature on ethnic conflict, ethnic, and the potential cost of ethnic diversity. The business literature has looked at this a lot in the U.S. in particular. And, you know, the meme in our culture is that our diversity is our strength. But when you look through the business literature where people have tried to figure out, is greater ethnic diversity really a strength in the workforce? It's been hard to find evidence of that. And in fact, the, the phrase that shows up more often, or at least as often now, is that diversity is a double-edged sword. And we know what that metaphor means, right? It means like, yeah. if you use the right way, maybe it works great. And if you use the wrong way, like it could really hurt you. So it's a... It's a difficulty to be managed. It's, there's some upsides, but there's some real downsides. So, so those effects are smaller, I want to emphasize, than all the other stuff that's early. Yeah. Right? Sure. The ethnic diversity sure. stuff is like it's, you have to, it's more, there's a, there's a greater randomness to it, work, to it turning it to be a, the bad side. But the bad sides, as we know from various forms of ethnic conflict over the centuries, can be quite horrifying. Right. I mean, one question I think this raises is let's say a, a country or even we can make it smaller, it's the company decides we want to just get the best talent from all over the world. So what they do is they hire a lot of market dominant minorities, you know, groups like the Chinese or Jews, et cetera, from different parts of the world and put them all together and say, oh, all right, you know, meritocracy, we've got the best, we cast this really wide net, but you end up with a very fractious, diverse group on, say, your corporate board, in that case, you know, would you think that the the negative effects of diversity would potentially outweigh the positive effects of just having all these market-dominant minorities? Or do you think, there, think that... The, oh, go ahead. No, there, I think the positive effects really went out. I think that yeah. for one thing, there's, a, there's an academic, there's smaller academic literature that finds that basically the higher... The more educated the group is, the more educated uh -huh. the people in the groups are, better, the better chance they have of having the skills to sort of work it out. Okay. Uh, so basically, the more you're filtering the group, once you're getting up to the corporate board level, then there is some research on this. It's, it, you're, not, you're not really going to find evidence of cost of ethnic diversity at the corporate board level. Because whoever makes it to that level is sort of, they're folks who figure yeah. out how to get along so, I mean, if you were just randomly picking people off the street to do this, like a jury trial, like sortition, right, right. that's how you're picking corporate boards. I could see more difficulty there where ethnic conflict could kick off something. But what about once a group what's been through these, the filters of graduate school and serving in a court, okay. serving in various big bureaucracies, that's not where you're going to find I'm, I'm going to ask a question that might get you canceled. I apologize. But, you know, I'll, I'll what, dodge it if it's he too is, bad. He is, he is tenure. But, but what, okay, but so, so a lot of, there are nonetheless a lot of corporate diversity initiatives that target corporate boards. And those boards are not just trying to expand the pool of talent and accepting whatever the meritocratic result is. They're looking at groups that are not making it there based purely on merit, right? Uh -huh. And trying to boost the representation of those groups. So I guess my question is do you think that in that case, when, when the diversity is engineered by these kinds of policies, would you still expect the, the result to hold, especially if the people being boosted have themselves already probably benefited from multiple layers of affirmative action? No, there, you know, I, I'm, 
I still think it's going to work because I think the filters are tough. Like, yeah. really, like the when, what does it need to be like a utopian, like what does it need to be an Einsteinian level super genius or a Steve Jobs level manager to make a, a meaningful contribution mm -hmm. to a corporate board, right? We're talking about being sharp enough to sort of a, keep an eye on how the companies run and yeah. be part of a sort of firefighter team to come in during a crisis and, you know, pick a new CEO or help end some scandal or whatever it is. I mean, think of what courts do. So I, I, I mean, I, I think I know we are trying to get at here that the, that the affirmative action process in the, in the West, according to the way you're presenting the question, means that the filters aren't tough enough. I think the filters are still plenty tough. I mean, okay. look, yeah. And, and I mean, part of the way to look at this is just, I'll just stop there. I think that's, I think that's the right point. I think the filters, the filters don't have to be utopian. And again, I've looked at data oh. where I, people would use, where people try to use event studies of announcements of appointments to boards. And if, if DEI driven board appointments were bad news, we would see stock prices fall on, on news, right? So, well, I'm not, I'm not totally the stock, sure. The stock market is pretty smart. Those I'm not, I'm not totally sure about the last part for a lot of reasons, but, but you persuade me that this probably is not the end of the world for business. So and yeah, you, you've avoided, it's, it's, you've avoided it's, it's, canceling it's, yourself. So I'll, it depends, I'll it depends on the, it depends on the firm. It depends on the prestige of the firm. I want to ask, I want to ask sort of a technical question going in a slightly different direction as we sort of get sort of close to the end. One one topic that I think you should have touched on that I've long been interested in is basically immigration as a selection process. What I mean by that is immigrants are likely to be systematically different from the people who do not emigrate for the simple reason that they're the ones who immigrate who emigrate and the people who stay home stay home. You know, I think one one sort of concrete example of this is the difference in levels of reported social conservatism among Southeast Asian Indians who leave India and come to the United States versus Southeast Asian Indians who stay home and vote for Narendra Modi. How do you do you do you think that that kind of immigration selection has an implication for your th A, do you think it's real? B, do you think it has an implication for your thesis? And if so, C, how do you incorporate it? Uh, you know, there's a famous study about this with Swedes that I, I would say it's 19th century Swedish emigrants. It was one of the a Deep Roots paper that got a, a lot of mainstream attention. So basically, the people who left Sweden tended to be more individualistic, more laissez-faire, loosely speaking, than people who stayed behind. And so it's possible that the Swedish welfare state is in some part due to the fact that a lot of the individualists left. It's a glib generalization of a research of, a, of a, somebody else's paper. So there's got to be a selection effect there. And I don't know how it could explain why, for instance, the, the relationship that I find or that others find between home country attitudes and the descendants of migrants is only like a 40% relationship, right? If there's only 40% carryover, part of the extra 60% might be that the people migrating, the people leaving are a lot different than the ones who stayed behind. So, you know, I'm kind of Irish. I'm guessing that the Irish people who left Ireland weren't the same as the people who decided to stay behind. So I usually like to, I usually like to sort of towards the end of this conversation, talk about concrete concrete deliverables you know what 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 the what the implications are let's and we've talked we touched on this throughout the conversation but i wanted to bring it home let's imagine that tomorrow you're put in charge of uscis and for some reason you know joe biden is doing other stuff it's like you just make all the calls what decisions would you make differently are you talking about immigration policy right yes yeah the, the abbreviation i was lost oh, so you, 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 us customs immigration service yeah 
Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, the U.S. as as quite a few people pointed out, like uh, been quite a few years recently where our our migration policy de facto has been pretty high skilled focused, right? Maybe for the last decade or so. But an immigration policy focused on high skilled immigration and giving like a couple of points, not the whole score, but a couple of points for the question of where your whether your parents and grandparents have lived in countries with moderate with reasonably liberal values. Did you grow up in a culture of moderately liberal values? These are good things to have. So, you know, I like the points-based systems that Australia, New Zealand, places like that have chosen seem like a great place to start. But some of the points shouldn't just be what you are like in terms of your, whether you have an engineering degree. It should be like, have you been through a bunch of elections? Did your parents vote for stuff? Have you ever run for city council? These These signals of cosmopolitan liberal attitudes that go back for a generation or so, these deserve some weight. Not overwhelming weight, but some weight. Yeah, that is an interesting question to me. Is 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 how you recognize? You know, it's it's very easy to you know, I I, I hand you a form, and on the form it says, "Are you know, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party?" It's very easy to check no, right? The whole function of that it's it's, mm-hmm. it's perjury trap or whatever. Just very briefly, do you have thoughts? And this is a this is a related question, even the economics literature, the, in the uh, social literature. Of of how to actually recognize values as opposed to you know the difference between how people the values people will claim to have values that they actually hold. Do you have thoughts on making that distinction? No, that's that's a really that's a great question. Like how like knowing that knowing the heart of a person is very difficult. That's why these that's why glib generalizations that come from social science literature are useful. Knowing that German Americans are kind of different from Italian Americans is it's a stable enough fact that you can make some use of it in making predictions about the future. So, you know, I'm happy to look under the lamppost here where the, where the light is brighter. And this literature on that documents the assimilation myth is part of this. It's the lamppost I'm holding on to. Huh. Right, right. What, can, can I just ask, because this has sort of been overshadowing the whole conversation for me. You know, what, what do you say to someone who looks at some of these past waves of immigration and says, you know what, yeah, Italian Americans, because of their tight knit families, their low trust, all of this, they familism. They did change the politics of the country, and you know what? And you know how they changed them? They made they, they created the electoral backbone for the New Deal, and the New Deal was good. And after a certain level of economic development, we just don't really need that much more development. And so we uh, we're gonna. We want immigrants who will make us more status than you will support more redistributive and communitarian policies. So I think that actually is what a lot of smart leftists would say in reply to you. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, if that's what they're interested in, I'm glad for them to like read my book and make use of it to build the best immigration policy from their point of view. But I do think this question of how do we keep the world's innovation powerhouses going is a big question we should all care about because we certainly don't have enough cures for disease yet. Sure, sure. Fair. I think I think that might be a good point to segue to concluding thoughts. Aaron, what are you what is your takeaway? Well, I was sort of getting at it with the the last question, but my takeaway it, this just reaffirms for me that uh, although we've been having a kind of technical discussion about economics literature, ultimately this debate is not a technocratic one. It's a values question. And yes, there's a there's an empirical question about how immigration does or does not affect political culture and how those effects in turn are translated into economic productivity and institutional quality. 
But ultimately, how you evaluate institutional quality is, is an, in some sense, a normative question. And what's always bothered me about our immigration discourse is that no one wants to just, well, few people want to come out and just say what they really care about. And yeah, Garrett, I mean, I think you make a very good case that if you care about the things a lot of American libertarians claim to care about, you should probably not want the immigration policies pushed by Cato. I would just say that for conservatives like, say, at American Compass or, or for those who are more communitarian or post-liberal in their impulses, I actually think those conservatives could easily take your argument and say, yeah, this just goes to show why we should have more immigration from Latin America or from Catholic countries with crappier institutions. So, you know, I won't go into my own views on this just to say, I think the whole debate would be a lot healthier if we could be upfront about our values instead of trying to settle this in terms of, oh, well, how will it affect GDP growth? Because I don't think that's really a, a great terrain to be having this debate on. You know, I think I, I I come away from this agreeing. I mean, I say you know I I agree with the book, and I sort of I I agree more now. My 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 boss Rahan Salam wrote a piece for the Atlantic, I think a few months back, talking about the virtues of what he called selection as uh, this idea that the the winning the winning immigration proposal for the GOP looked like framing immigration as how do we pick the best people for the national interest. I I separately at one point suggested that good immigration policy means picking smart people who love America. And that's, you know, both of those sort of my my attitude at this point is like uh you 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 want to select your you want to select for populations that that increase total wealth and also are generally aligned on values. I think Garrett's answer to my last question about search is a really interesting one, which is can you actually discern what, you know, can, can you know what is in people's hearts? No, although I've I've some other thoughts about that. But but certainly, you know, using using national values as a proxy is an interesting way to get around the quest or get around the challenge do i think it's politically viable i don't know nobody's nobody's been on high school immigration in america yet they keep trying it's not working it's a rational system so it's got no chance politically is my view i think that's uh i think that's a good opportunity for us to segue to some recommendations aaron what what should our listeners be checking out this week well garrett in his book does at the very least, heavily imply that Italian immigration was not an un, you know an unmitigated good, that there were some costs to it too, including that more kind of corruption-prone familialist culture. So I'm going to recommend one of the greatest tributes to Italian American culture that U.S. cinema has ever produced, and that is, of course, The Godfather. The Godfather is a movie that shows us that indeed, yes, Italian immigration had costs. The whole movie is about the Italian mafia, which killed lots of people and contributed to political corruption in cities. Wasn't great. On the other hand, it gave us really good food. And perhaps more importantly, it gave us The Godfather itself, one of the best movies of all time. So the move on, on multiple levels, both the movie's content and also its existence, I think, testifies to, to use the term from the diversity literature, the, the, the double-edged sword of immigration. Well, so, so Garrett's most recent book is his third and what he labels in the acknowledgments his Singapore trilogy. He's, he has two other books which also relate to Singapore. And so my recommendation for this week for our listeners is a classic 1993 essay in Wired magazine by William Gibson, author of Neuromancer. 
the essays Disneyland with the death penalty. They send Gibson to Singapore to like see what's up. And it's I read it before going to Singapore myself. I found it I found it very instructive, both in terms of what Singapore is like, but also, you know, I think to the extent that there is an alternative governance model for, you know, life in life in the 21st century, life in the 22nd century, emerging other than, you know, sort of American style liberal democratic capitalism, it's something like what is embodied in post-communist East Asian states, sort of China, but particularly the offshoots of China that, that Garrett talks about. And I think I think it's a good exploration of what the pros and cons of that experience are like, which relates to, you know, what are the what are the merits of importing that kind of culture to your country? Garrett, do you have any any anything you'd like our listeners to check out, either your own work or other people's? Well, yes, I'm happy to recommend my colleague Brian Kaplan's graphic novel called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. So it it really it's a good foil to my book. It's a good we're basically kind of arguing about the same issues. And I'm especially proud to say that I play that I it's the first time I've ever appeared as a character in a graphic novel. So it's I think your readers will get a, a lot out of treating that as a back and forth, a dialogue between two people. And given the Singapore reference, I'm glad to recommend enthusiastically Lee Kuan Yew's memoirs from third world to first, the story of how he built Singapore. It's a huge book. You don't have to read the whole thing. Just open it up to any page that looks halfway decent. Yeah, it's, it, it's a, it shows you that in a way, contrary to my story, it's not just about having the right, having people show up. Somebody actually has to build the government through a series of like difficult political choices on a daily basis. And he shows you just how hard it is to do politics day in, day out. Okay. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. And thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, high school immigration applications you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. I think that's all the time that we have for this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Siberium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. Hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you.